This is Dr. Hilary McClafferty. Welcome to Physician Thriving, a podcast exploring the modern physician experience with a focus on resilience and the skills needed to thrive in medicine. I am so delighted this morning to welcome Dr. Kathy Kemper, Professor of Pediatrics and Nursing at The Ohio State University and Editor-in-Chief of Complementary Therapies in Medicine. Welcome, Kathy, and thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Tell us a little bit about your current work. What are you involved in right now? Well, I have my fingers in a couple of pies. Um, as you <laughs> mentioned in your introduction, I'm the editor-in-chief of a journal on complementary therapies. So a good deal of my time is taken with reviewing manuscripts and soliciting reviewers and making manuscript decisions and getting back to authors about that. Um, and also writing editorials for that journal. So that is one part of my work. It's and a- you're very, very, yeah, I was going to say you're very active in the complementary and integrative world. In fact, you are an internationally respected expert in this area, and I wanted to point that out. Can you can you tell us just a little bit, a little bit of sidebar here about how you got into that world? Well, it goes back a long way because I was actually interested in what we called at the time holistic medicine before I was interested in medicine itself. Um, I had started a meditation practice in middle school and um, (laughs) yes. And um, so when I went to college, I was a pretty regular meditator and I went through what a lot of people go through in college of what am I going to major in and started off in one thing and moved to another. And anyway, I ended up in um, human behavior or psychology. And at the time in the 1970s, there was a lot of emerging research about the impact of stress on disease. And mm-hmm. um, my project as a college senior was looking at the relationship between stress and glucose control in diabetics. And we found that people wow. who had experienced stress using the holmes Rahe scale of, you know, stressful events, um, had worse hemoglobin A1Cs, higher hemoglobin A1Cs than people who had lower scores on stress. So I was interested in the question of whether decreasing stress through practices like meditation could improve health outcomes. And the psychologists that I spoke with were kind of hemming and hawing. They weren't really sure. Um, uh, the relaxation response, Herb Benson's uh, book had just come out. And uh, my friends in college recommended that if I was interested in the relationship between mind and body and doing research on that, I should really go to medical school because in this simplistic worldview, people who thought they had mental health concerns went to psychologists and people who thought they had physical health concerns went to physicians. And so if I was interested in the impact of meditation on physical health, I should go into medicine. So, Oh, that is so interesting. <laughs> so I... I had to change my whole course curriculum because I hadn't pre-med courses. I hated pre-meds. You know, they were so competitive and cutthroat and, you know, all the judgments I had about pre-meds. Um, 
for sure I had to become one. Um, so I had to take chemistry then as a junior and, um, and then went to medical school, not really planning to ever practice medicine. I had this idea I was going to go do research on mind, what's now called mind-body medicine, but I wanted to do research on meditation. And then I got hooked on medicine when I saw uh, epinephrine save somebody's life in the emergency room when I was a third year medical student. And I thought, wow, maybe there's something to this medicine stuff after all. Maybe this would be useful to learn just for itself. <laughs> when you were going through medical school, you know, were you... Did you make it known to your fellow students or your uh, professors that you had this interest in mind-body medicine? Um, yes. And I was also um, a housemate of several people who were all vegetarians. And uh, there were several people in my class who were uh, very serious athletes. And so there was a lot of emphasis on healthy lifestyle. I, I think a third of our class were vegetarians in medical school really and um another student and i went to the student um the dean for student affairs and asked if we could have a room um in the medical school as a meditation room that students could use to meditate and they gave us a room so we started having a meditation room there i mean that was a successful um request that we made we made other requests like can we stop selling cigarettes from the candy striper parts and that was <laughs> that was not a <laughs> at least for the next 20 years um it took 20 years for right. um tobacco banned from the medical school campus but some things seemed wow. relatively non-controversial and, and meditating was not very controversial well, you know, and it's interesting. So did you, did you get any pushback? I mean, did you, did you feel any sense that, um, you know, may, maybe some of your colleagues weren't as receptive? How did that, how did that work out? I didn't really feel any pushback from my colleagues. No. Um, no, the only pushback I think I got was, I'm sure many people had this experience when I, decided that I, I was going to go into pediatrics. Um, I, I got some pushback from people who thought I should become a subspecialist rather than a generalist because they thought smart, creative people should become specialists for some reason. Yeah. I mean, it was a compliment, but it was a sort of an odd compliment because they, they didn't think that I, they thought I would be wasting my time if I went into general pediatrics, but that's what I really loved. My housemates noticed I was just happy at the end of the day after seeing kids all day long. So that's why I chose pediatrics. You found your path. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then so, I had so about a 30 year detour because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because I like pediatrics so much. I, I went to a pediatric residency and then I did a research fellowship and, you know, got my first job and got caught up in directing a clinic. And, you know, there were so many, so many research questions. I'm a very curious person and if there's a question there, I, I just have to find out the answer and do a research project and, and try to answer it. And so it took a long time to get back to my 
original question about mind-body medicine, and in the meantime, many other people had started addressing that question. Well, you know, on that note, too, tell me, and you work a lot with, you worked and work a lot with trainees, right? Students and residents and fellows. Um, how did you interact with them around stress management? What was your approach? Um, well, fortunately, I've had uh, students who are interested in meditation um, for a good deal of my career or interested in other things. I suspect that early in my career as an attending, I probably had the same attitude as the people who taught me, which was like, suck it up, get over it. Um, <laughs> I do remember, I do remember, um, my first job after fellowship was at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. And I, uh, chose to work there because the staff, the medical staff there were really outstanding researchers. And I knew even after doing a research fellowship, I would continue to need mentoring about research if I was going to be a successful researcher. So I went there, but I didn't really have a lot of clinical expertise for what I had been hired to do, which was to be an attending in the trauma ICU for eight months a year. <laughs> in fact, I had no background in that. So I was in the burn and trauma ICU, like plunged into the deep end, very steep. Okay. And, um, I went to my attending and said, we're, you know, this is really sad. What do you do with all this sadness that you have about, um, you know, these kids who are suffering and dying? And uh, his advice to me was that we, we don't cry on the wards. We cry in the parking lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, advice I had gotten earlier during residency from a female attending was that it was okay to cry in the ladies room, but not on the wards. So I, I think that um, there's a lot of hiding our vulnerability in medicine as sort of a, a cultural practice. How did you, uh, and, and not, you know, sort of on that note, when you, when you look at the various situations that you've, you know, challenging situations that you've faced or handled in your work. Tell us about, you know, your learning curve. How, how did you uh, learn to cope more effectively or effectively? You know, what, what worked well, what went wrong? You know, how, how was that? Tell us more about your process. Um, I'll have to preface it by saying, I'm sure it's still a work in progress. And, <laughs> you know, we continue to learn yeah, throughout our lives about how to manage. Just when we think we've mastered something, something new comes up to challenge our expertise. It's kind of like parenting. You've mastered being the parenting of a school child and then they become an adolescent. And like, I've got no idea what to do now. Um, right. Back to square yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think... Um, I've, I've often used exercise as a stress management tool. I was a runner early in my academic career and I would go on these long, long runs and to kind of clear my head. I continued to meditate 
um, for most of my life, my meditation practice was a, a sort of concentration meditation, like focusing on a word, or focusing on mm -hmm. breathing in peace and breathing out tension or something like that. Um, it wasn't until I was at Boston Children's Hospital 10, 11 years into my academic career that one of my students, Paula Gardner, recommended that I take the mindfulness meditation training at the University of Massachusetts. And I was a little reluctant to do that because I thought, yeah, I've been meditating 30 years. What am I going to learn there, you know? Um, and, and I learned a completely different way of meditating, which was very, very important. And I, I think um, I, I just had a conversation with Paula yesterday about meditation and um, self-judgment. I think a lot of um, physicians are facing extraordinary stress right now with the coronavirus and everything being upended. And physicians aren't the only ones, but you know, yeah. physicians and nurses on the front line are dealing with things they've never had to deal with before, with an intensity they've never had to deal with before. And so some um, self-judgment comes up, like, I'm not doing this perfectly. I need to do it perfectly. Lives are at stake. There's a lot of that kind of thinking in medicine. And so self-judgment comes up. And then we think, oh, I shouldn't be judging myself. So I'm judging myself for judging myself. Um, right. And mindfulness right. really gives us the tool, I think, to create a space to just notice those thoughts. Oh. Now I'm judging myself. Now I'm feeling anxious that I'm not going to perform perfectly or I'm going to, somebody's going to die or it's not going to work or I'm not going to be protected. I'm going to bring this home. I'm going to get my spouse sick, my children sick, my parents sick. You know, so we bring these feelings just naturally arise because we're human beings. And I think mindfulness is helpful in reminding us to hold space for those emotions and to notice them arising, feeling anxious, wonder how long I'm going to feel anxious, what triggers that anxiety, where do I feel it in my body, what else, what are the thoughts that come along with when I feel that emotion or those sensations um, and just notice it rather than try to push it away or suppress it or change it or do something else. Uh, I should feel calm. I, I need to be calm because I'm in a physician and I need to be a good role model. You know, so we, it helps us learn to tolerate those uncomfortable feelings and even perhaps welcome them as signals um, of circumstances or thoughts that we can choose to interact with in a more deliberate way and not a reflex uh, panicky way, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, to that end, you have done um, incredible work developing resources for for colleagues in this um, area. Can you tell us more about your online programs and, you know, how those came about and, and a little bit more about how they're being used? Sure. Um, our online programs in mind-body skills training grew out of work we had started back at Boston Children's Hospital in 1999, where we were trying to develop 
um, email-based education for clinicians about herbs and dietary supplements because I had been recruited to Boston Children's to start a center for holistic pediatric education and research. And the questions we were getting most commonly from our colleagues in the hospital were about um, oncology patients who were wanting to use herbs and dietary supplements. And that made the oncologist kind of nervous about, you know, what effect those herbs and supplements might have on the children and the effectiveness of the treatments they were getting and their, their safety. So we developed an online training about herbs and supplements, and then we evaluated that um, because it was a new idea at the time to uh, think that you could educate people using the internet. Internet connections were very slow, so we were trying to do it by email, which was uh, people were really starting to adopt a lot by the late 90s. So we found yeah. that we could educate health professionals, nurses, physicians, uh, dietitians, pharmacists using email, um, using email. And then we did a study later on comparing email versus a website and pushing the content to people versus pulling. And it turned out that people could learn both ways. When I came to Ohio State, the person who recruited me, Dr. Steve Gabby, was very interested in the issue of burnout. And I thought, you know, we've shown that you can educate people about herbs and supplements online. I wonder if it's possible to teach people about meditation online. You know, herbs and supplements, mm -hmm. it's a kind of factual-based, um, knowledge-based learning, whereas mind-body skills are more like ballroom dancing or playing the piano. It's a its a practice rather than simply a knowledge base. So we um, developed an online curricula about several different kinds of mind-body skills, and we also made about three dozen recordings of mind-body practices that clinicians could recommend to patients to help with pre-op anxiety or insomnia or pain or all different kinds of things. So we wanted to have a curriculum that would help the clinicians feel comfortable and confident enough about the practices that they would then recommend these recordings to patients. So we developed several tools simultaneously, the major ones being the online recordings could be used by patients, and then the curriculum for health professionals to help them feel comfortable recommending those recordings to patients. And then we wanted to know, um, was it feasible? Would people sign up? Were they interested? And then would they have any impact on the health professionals? Because we know um, from for a long time from research on exercise and tobacco and other things, that when clinicians engage in healthy behavior, they're much more likely to counsel patients about those healthy behaviors, and they're more likely to be believed by patients, you know, as sort of role models. So we wanted to know more credible. if mm -hmm. the training actually had an impact on the health professionals and if they would continue to practice themselves as well as recommend the practices to patients. So we did a series of studies about that and found that 
indeed, there was an immediate effect, even if somebody just did one hour of the online training. Um, there was more of an effect if they did more of the modules on mind-body training. And the people who practiced over 14 months had a long-term benefit in terms of their well-being, their sense of resilience, um, positive emotions, and so forth. That is tremendous. And you've had hundreds of people go through and use these courses of all of all different specialties and training levels. Is that correct? Right. We've had over 4,500 people do some or all of that yeah. training in the last five years that it's been available. And uh, as an outgrowth of that, as, as you know, we've, we did several studies um, with a, the National Consortium of Folks Interested in Pediatric Resident Burnout and Resilience, the study consortium for that, looking at risk and protective factors for burnout, particularly among pediatric residents. Right, and uh, and found effect, and these are still available, and I will include the link in the uh, in the show notes of this podcast so that people can access the courses. Is that if that's um, that's correct information? They're still available. Yes, Is that are. right? And we're in discussion with several groups yes. now about using them um, nationally and regionally, as different groups are interested in what they can do to help their residents and their nurses and their attending staff um, cope with the stress of practicing, particularly right now with all the stress right now practicing in a pandemic. Yeah, they, they, we are just in surreal times at the moment. And um, do you still have a meditation practice? Do you What do you use on a day-to-day you know, level yourself moving through your work and challenges? Oh, thank you for asking that. There are several practices that I do on a very regular basis. Um, uh, Let me back up for a second and uh, (laughs) mention the fact that I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease about five years ago. And uh, when I was first diagnosed, uh, one of my main symptoms was fatigue. And I found the practice of loving kindness meditation very helpful. I, you know, it's, it's hard when we, um, recognize that our lives are limited and we may not be able mm-hmm. to do or achieve everything that's on our to-do list or our wish list in life. And, Doing loving kindness meditation every morning when I first wake up has helped me feel like even if I physically am unable to do as much for other people as I would want to do, at least mentally and emotionally, I am sending out goodwill into the world. And it helps me feel very connected in a positive way with people around the world and people people that I care about, people that I don't even know. So I usually start the day with a loving kindness meditation um, before I even get out of bed. And then 
later on I do a sitting meditation where I focus on my breath and I uh, continue to have sort of a, an affirmation focused meditation. Um, if I have a symptom come up during the day, like a tremor or a muscle spasm or pain, that is a good opportunity to use mindfulness to just notice what's going on without getting worried about it or frustrated with it or I have to do something about this right now to make it go away. Um, to kind of listen right. to it to see what message it may be giving to me. The other practice that I do every day is a gratitude meditation. I do either first thing in the morning or last thing before I go to bed at night, depending on how tired I am when I go to bed. Um, I keep a gratitude journal because I think that the two most powerful emotions we can generate intentionally that are helpful for us are compassion and gratitude. So those practices are Thank, thank you. Thank you, Kathy. And, you know, as we're starting to wrap up here, what, what would you, what would you say, you know, are there any other sort of messages or anything that you would want to, um, pass, pass out to your colleagues and trainees around the world, around the country? Any final thoughts? want to say thank you to my colleagues and the trainees around the world who have chosen this path of service to others. Um, there's no higher calling. I admire you so much. I'm grateful to you for your dedication and your intention to serve. I admire your professionalism in putting the needs of others ahead of yourself, uh, putting the desire to relieve suffering ahead of the desire to make, you know, make it rich quick. Um, I just have tremendous gratitude and awe. And I hope you can appreciate yourself and take care of yourself and take care of each other and support each other in doing this incredibly. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you so much, Kathy. I want to thank our guest, Kathy Kemper, for her time. And I will list the resources in the show notes so everyone listening can access your incredibly important work. Kathy, thank you so much. You're welcome.